Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. All right, so today we're tackling the topic of whether science somehow disproves the Bible. Like, has the rise of modern science shown that faith is irrational? It's a really important topic. And I want to start with a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis writes, Ever since men were able to think, they have been wondering what this universe really is and how it came to be. Now, a quick heads up. Lewis says, since men have been able to think. Now, why does he say just men? Well, it's because women have always been able to think, right? <laughs> now, he actually wrote this about 70 years ago. So in some spots, the language is a bit dated. The term men means mankind. Anyhow, he goes on to write, very roughly two views have been held. First, there's what's called the materialist view. People who take that view think that matter and space just happen to exist and always have existed. Nobody knows why. And that the matter behaving in certain fixed ways has just happened by a sort of fluke to produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think. The other view is the religious view. According to it, what is behind the universe is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. That is to say, it is conscious and has purposes and prefers one thing to another. To paraphrase, Lewis is basically saying, don't think that one of these views is old and one is new. They've been around as long as people have been able to think. Now, in our day, many thoughtful people wonder, has science proven that the materialist view is correct? That the universe is just a giant random machine. God doesn't exist and faith is irrational. Well, let's answer that by looking at six key questions about science. And the first one is this, is science the only reliable way to know about something? Now we talked about this in our overview message a few weeks back. So I'll be brief here. You know, science has great prestige in our day. So this is a really important question. Are there any other kinds of knowledge besides scientific knowledge? Well, the short answer is there are other kinds of knowledge. And if we don't recognize that, it really limits what we need to know in order to be able to live. Now, you may remember in school learning about something called the scientific method. It's a little tricky to define precisely, but it has to do with the notion that we make observations and they lead to theories. And then there will be a hypothesis designed to test the theory. And after that, we run an experiment, measure things, and the outcome will either confirm or disprove the hypothesis. That's the scientific method. Now, because science has made such amazing progress in certain fields like medicine and technology, some people claim this scientific method or empirical verification is the only way to have reliable knowledge. Well, that would mean, by the way, that there's no such thing as moral knowledge or spiritual knowledge. 
And the idea that the only knowledge that counts comes from the scientific method is called scientism. Not science, but scientism. And there's a guy named John Polkinghorne. He's a Cambridge physicist and great thinker about faith and science issues in our day. He has a really helpful illustration about this. He says, imagine somebody asking, why is water boiling in that kettle? And one person answers, because burning gas is heating the water. And another person answers, because I want a cup of tea. Which answer is right? Well, they're both right. And one person is talking about non-personal causes, mechanical forces. That's what science tends to do. The other answer talks in terms of a person and purpose and intention. It is not scientific in a mechanistic way, but it's true and it's terribly important. He goes on to say, you see, science involves a method that is enormously useful to investigate large chunks of reality, but it is not the only way to know truth. Human life is of great value. That's true. You know that, but you can't put it in a test tube. You know, it is wrong to live for selfish greed. That is true. That is moral truth. And a society that is unable to recognize the existence of moral truth is headed for serious problems. He says this in conclusion, scientism is a dogma that says any dimension that cannot be exhaustively explained by the scientific method doesn't exist or doesn't matter. All right, by the way, scientism itself as an ideology cannot be proven or established by the scientific method either. So is science the only reliable way to know about something? Absolutely not. It's very important, but it's not the only way. All right, let's explore a second question. Has science proven the universe has no purpose and it's just a random machine? You know, this idea is quite rampant. A professor at Cornell University, William Provine, wrote this. He said, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. There are no gods, no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. Wow. You know, just as a matter of scientific inquiry, if you were to ask, is there a single article in a peer-reviewed journal confirmed by a double-blind study that establishes or even addresses a single one of these mammoth claims? The answer would be no. I mean, you would find nothing in all the literature of evolutionary biology that backs these presumptuous claims. And yet there's this idea out there in the ether that somehow something has been found out that discredits faith. Here's another quote. This is from an astronomer named Carl Sagan. You may recognize that name. He's another guy who did not ascribe to faith. And he wrote this. We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Do you notice here there are all these really loaded words? Insignificant, humdrum, lost, tucked away, 
forgotten. I mean, those are not scientific terms, but they're weighted with meaning. I mean, the idea behind statements like this is that somehow science, by showing us how enormous, immense the size and age of the universe is, proves that tiny little human beings do not have unique dignity or value or worth. Well, this idea that there's a contrast between the immensity of nature and the tininess and brevity of human life, we didn't invent that idea. We did not discover that contrast. People have been thinking about that one for a long, long time. In fact, the psalmist said this thousands of years ago. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Now, precisely the same contrast was the object of serious reflection a long time ago. We get so arrogant about ourselves in our day. But the psalmist does not draw the same conclusions that modern atheists do, that we are insignificant based on size. Now, he goes on to say, you have crowned them, human beings, with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. He says, you have crowned them. You've made them like transcendent beings. See, human beings are invested with a divine image. They have this capacity to learn and create. They have a weight that comes with being a moral agent, being able to make decisions and be responsible for them being able to care for creation, it's staggering. And that's why we respond to certain people the way we do. Does anyone listening right now have grandchildren? Well, if you do, how many of your grandchildren are smarter and better looking than almost any other grandchildren you've ever seen? Why do we have those kinds of feelings? Because when we look at a tiny little human being, we know it's not just a blob of tissue or a collection of jiggling atoms. We know this. I mean, if significance were measured by size, whales would be the most important creatures on the planet. And I don't hear anybody arguing that one. And I would say that any worldview or system of thought that cannot account for the inescapable weight, dignity, and value of human beings should be found wanting by any sane, rational evaluation. I mean, you have to decide what you think about that. I think that's inescapable. All right, let's tackle another question. What does the human desire for meaning and purpose tell us about human existence? Because it's there. Curtis White, he's not a believer, but he's written a fascinating book called The Science Delusion, critiquing this whole notion of scientism that the scientific method can tell us everything there is to know about existence. And part of what happens with scientism is you end up not only in a universe where there is no God, you end up in a universe where there is no personhood. A man named Jim Watson, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on the DNA double helix, he wrote this. What are human beings for? What is their purpose? Well, I don't think we are for anything. We're just products of evolution. You notice it's not simply we're products. He says we're just products, nothing more. He goes on to say, you can say, gee, your life must be pretty bleak if you don't think there's a purpose. 
but I'm having a good lunch. See, the idea is there is no purpose, but I can get along fine without any sense of purpose. But can we? Really? Can anybody? Can Jim Watson? Now, Curtis White in this book, The Science Delusion, points out that while Jim Watson claims human life is nothing more than jiggling atoms, he doesn't seem to think that his accomplishments were nothing more than jiggling atoms. You know, the story of how he fought and struggled and worked to get the recognition of a Nobel Prize is actually quite interesting, as White points out. He says, it's as if Jim Watson was saying, the earth is insignificant, people are transient, existence is random, life is meaningless, but I won the Nobel Prize. Look, Mom, look. (laughs) See, the universe evokes a sense of awe and wonder in us that is remarkably stubborn. When you consider the beauty of a gorgeous sunset or the ability of music to move our hearts into deep, deep emotion or the awe-inspiring ways of animals in nature, I mean, everything from stunning sights to melodious sounds to sweet smells and mouth-watering tastes, those are all transcendent experiences that speak to something higher. Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11 says this, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You know, wonder is a realization, not just that something is, but that it is good. That's good. See, it's the human heart echoing those words way back in the beginning of Genesis. God spoke and it was so, and God saw that it was good. And it is, we know this. And wonder moves us dangerously close to worship. I would say if you're thoughtful, you have to ask, is our hunger for wonder and meaning a clue to something just beyond material reality? C.S. Lewis writes that he thinks it is in a very provocative passage. Listen to this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Hmm. It's a good thing to think about. All right, a fourth question. Haven't science and religion always kind of been at war with each other, offering rival explanations of the way things are? This whole warfare view is pretty common. And here's a classic example. Around 1633, the Catholic Church found the scientist Galileo guilty of heresy because he taught that the earth revolves around the sun rather than the other way around. Now that did happen. And that kind of thing, unfortunately, can happen. People of faith, Christians, can and do get into trouble if they assume too quickly that they understand the way the Bible should be interpreted around an issue where God actually wants human beings to do some scientific investigation. And so you have statements in the Bible like this. 
He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. And so there were people who figured, well, that means we don't have to try to examine it scientifically because it's right there in the Bible. Well, clearly from our perspective now, they were not interpreting the Bible rightly. So I would say thoughtful Christians need to be cautious about assuming too quickly that we know what a passage means. But this narrative of scientific advance and Christian retreat, it's based on just a few examples like the one I just shared. And they use them over and over again. But if you look into those examples, you'll see that they're quite fragile. In fact, many of them are simply bogus. I'll give you an example. People have argued that for a thousand years, the medieval Christians believed the earth was flat. But then the brilliant scientists showed up and revealed that the earth is round. Well, if you do a little historical investigation into the so-called flat earth theory, you'll discover that educated people throughout the Middle Ages knew perfectly well that the earth was round. In fact, the ancient Greeks who lived 500 years before Christ knew perfectly well the earth is round. How? Well, it's because you don't need Galileo's telescopes to figure it out. All you have to do is watch an eclipse. You can see the round shadow of the earth on the moon. Aristotle knew the earth is round. So the flat earth story is a complete legend it actually originated in a fictional work about Christopher Columbus. And the notion that science and religion historically have been at war with each other is also a myth. I mean, as a matter of fact, historically, again, in our day, people tend not to know this, but science emerged primarily from people of faith. There's a guy by the name of Rodney Stark at Baylor University, and he did a study on this. In 17th century Europe, kind of the cradle of science in many ways, out of the 52 leading scientists, 62% of them were what he called devout believers. 34% of them were conventionally religious. And only two out of the 52 were religious skeptics. And just so you know, by that time, 17th century Europe, there were a fair number of skeptics, but only two of the leading 52 scientists were among them. In fact, Paul Chamberlain, a man who has studied the history of science, he wrote this, the scientific enterprise as we know it probably would not exist had it not been for Christianity. Wow. Again, that's not widely known in our day. And it runs counter to a lot of the current popular understanding. Another scientist, John Houghton, points out this false idea in our day that belief in God got started out of our inability to understand things scientifically. And so modern atheists will say things like, from the dawn of mankind, when people were ignorant, didn't know what caused things, they would just attribute it to God or to a God. And so ancient man looks out of his cave and sees lightning and he doesn't know what caused the lightning. And so he says, well, that must be the lightning God. But today we know that lightning is an electrical discharge. You don't need God to explain it. Science has explained it. Or people didn't know what governed the moon. And so they created the goddess Diana. They didn't know why anybody would want to live up in the north when they could live in a comfortable, warm climate like Texas until two weeks ago. 
but I digress. All right. Faith in God is not based on gaps that science has not yet filled in. Non-believers sometimes think it is. And sadly, believers sometimes think, oh, if we can find an area where science hasn't explained it yet, we can say God did that. And then that's evidence for faith. I don't know about that. I mean, the God of the gaps theory or deal is kind of a really poor foundation to build faith on. Because then every time a gap gets filled in, faith gets kind of shaky. Now, faith in God is based on observations of meaning, value, and order that actually underlie the rise of science itself. I mean, the rise of science happened at a particular point in a particular history in a particular civilization. I mean, it didn't exist in the ancient world as we know it. Historically, the rise of science required a worldview that our world is orderly and will reward rational investigation. Now, if you know about ancient history, in the ancient world, they actually thought the earth was in an endless cycle where things go up and down, get better and worse. It was this constant tug of war between the gods or whatever kinds of forces there were and chaos. And the notion that the world is orderly and rewards rational investigation, that came from a worldview that there is an all-powerful, rational God. A Nobel Prize winning biochemist, Melvin Calvin, said this, this monotheistic view seems to be the historical foundation for modern science. See, science and faith are actually very complementary when approached correctly. Unless you think that science started out as favoring Christianity, but then turned a corner since Darwin, guess again. In fact, the whole notion of scientific advance and Christian retreat comes to a screeching halt in 1859 when Darwin published The Origin of Species. And you might say, well, that's odd. I mean, hasn't there been any new science since then? Now, there's actually been a lot but the science of the past 150 years, far from undermining Christianity, actually supports it in powerful ways. We just rarely hear about it. Let me give you one eye-opening example. Back in the fourth century, somebody posed a question to the church father, Augustine. If you think about time, time goes back, way back, doesn't it? But no matter how far back you go, you can always go back further can't you? So if somebody says 2,000 years ago, well, before that is 2,001 years ago. If somebody says 1 million years ago, before that was 1 million and 1 years ago. So time seems to stretch in a kind of elastic, indefinite way, both into the past and into the future. And so the question that was posed to Augustine was this, when did God make the universe? Did God actually create the universe? And if he did, what was he doing before that? In other words, how did God occupy his time, which he evidently had a lot of, prior to creating the universe? Well, Augustine gave a reply that's one of the most astounding replies ever given in the history of human thought. He said, based on a meditation of the book of Genesis, God created time along with the universe. In other words, before the universe, there was no time. Once upon a time, time did not exist. 
I know that's a little bit of a mind bender. And really for many centuries, it would be hard to explain. I mean, what do you mean time had a beginning? But interestingly enough, if you send your son or your daughter down the road to a physics course at UT or ACC, they'll find out real quick that as a direct consequence of the so-called Big Bang, not only did all matter in the universe have a beginning, but time and space also had a beginning. Time and space are properties of our universe. Outside of our universe, no time, no space. You know, for 2,000 years, Christians have been saying two things. First, God is eternal. Not just meaning living forever and ever and ever, but eternal in the sense of existing outside of time. And this concept of eternity, which seemed from a scientific point of view incoherent, now makes complete sense. If God is outside of the universe, he is outside of time. And second, the ancient Hebrews said there was nothing and then there was a universe. All other religions have gods that fashion the universe out of some pre-existing stuff. They didn't make it out of nothing. But the Hebrews said, no, there was nothing but God. And then we got a universe. Hebrews 11.3 says this, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And by the way, the ancient Hebrews, as far as I know, conducted no experiments. How did they find out? They said, God told us. And thousands of years later, science is corroborating these claims that we have believed by faith. Wow. All right, guess what? We're out of time this morning, but we still have two more key questions to explore regarding faith and science. The first one is this. Hasn't evolution disproved Genesis? And the second is, doesn't the Big Bang show that the universe didn't need God to create it? You won't want to miss the Christian response to those questions. So cliffhanger, all right, to be continued. Yeah, I know you love that one. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much that science and the Bible, when understood and interpreted properly, they mesh together perfectly because all truth is your truth. God, it should be self-evident that science and the scientific method is not the only way to know things in life. And I thank you that science has not proven the universe has no purpose. In fact, it's proven the opposite, that there seems to be a brilliant mind behind the universe. And our human desire for meaning and purpose tells us that we were meant for something more. And we recognize that. The fact that we sit in wonder and awe at all the things around us, speaks to something higher, speaks to something deeper. And God, I thank you that from the very beginning, the whole enterprise of science was launched because of people who believed that we live in a rational, orderly world. And so science and religion are, are not at war with each other. They go together complementary with each other. And so God, as we continue this study, I pray that it would bolster our faith and we would not shy away from scientific truth, that we would embrace the things that are being learned and discovered about our universe. 
and give you all the glory and honor and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.